evening and welcome to Transatlantic Experience with Lauren and Brian. I'm Lauren from, from the UK in Swansea and with me as always is... It's Brian in New York where it, once again it is sweltering and humid and miserable and over 90 degrees which is just freakish for Buffalo but anyway here we are. How are you Lauren? I'm good thanks. It looks like rain here so I'm a little bit jealous that you've got the sun. Oh no! You don't be jealous, cause it's it, it's it's uh, it sucks. It's really hot. It's like but unbearable. I live by the sea, so we we got a lot of water where I live too. You know, we got the mighty Niagara River and Lake Erie, and uh, you know all kinds of shit. The Erie Canal, which we all learned that song to sing in grade school. You probably didn't learn it in Swansea. Will you sing you? it for us tonight, Brian? No, but no. I did. Will you sing it for us tonight, Brian? Uh, no, I, I will not, um, because we are guaranteed to have no listeners if I start singing. But I once was talking to a friend in Australia who sang it to me. Well, I think I think you should sing it. You're a musician. You know, one day I'll play it for you. And uh, you don't know the song about the mule and look it up. It's a it's an old American folk song. No, you're really not missing much. Okay. And then I want you to sing it for me. Okay. I'll tell you what. You look it up and learn it. We'll sing it as a duet. We'll do a little Captain and Tennille version of it. Okay. You know, kind of like they did Muskrat Love by America. Well, we'll, we'll I'm Welsh. Do a... I can sing, so... Yeah, you could sing it in Welsh. I don't know what you call a <laughs> mule in Welsh. <laughs> Must be You're a... going to laugh. What is it? <laughs> Acid. <laughs> You are, you are still in the throes of the giggles. This is three episodes in a row you've been the giggling girl. This is amazing. Lauren, it's a side of you we don't know. What? This, <laughs> well, the last episode I couldn't help but giggle. I mean, Richie was super funny. That was two episodes ago. So you've been laughing so hard you forgot the order of the episodes. <laughs> I just never knew that Lauren laughed so hard at dirty words. Or even implied dirty words. You were one of those kids that used to get the dictionary and look up the dirty words first thing, weren't you? Never. <laughs> what was oh, that? Never. No, no, never. Yeah, you were. That's okay, I was too. It was hilarious. It was especially funny if you looked at a dictionary in school I'm and the dirty words. Yep. That's hilarious. Other than that, how's the week been going? It's been going all right. Um... It's, there's still no confirmed, well, the shops are opening up now, not that I would dare go into the shops. I mean, if if you've seen, I don't know how much of our news that you get, but everybody went and queued to go shopping again for <laughs> stuff like Primark and everything. Yeah, we... It we, was weird. We don't get much Welsh news here. Um, I mean, I can look it up online, but I have to admit I'm pretty lazy, so I don't really do that. But uh... Oh, England's opened before. Their shops have been open for nearly, like, a week or so. Oh, you got a storm coming there, don't you? You're, you? You can tell your internet's breaking up. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's no, okay. What are you going to do? I mean, you know, we're on the other sides of an ocean here. <laughs> Just the fact that we can actually record like this and talk to each other in real time is just freaky can you i know it's amazing i still feel bad you should feel but the guilty. thing is, is, is when i go back to work i'm going to miss being able to do this with you i do um 
I'm going to miss being able to do this three or four times a week with you because sometimes we have been, you know, prolific. Remember that day we did two shows back to back? That was we brilliant. Did. Yes. Well, you know, we'll be able to still record people. Wasn't Don't it worry. Uh, Neil Story and Aaron Raw? It was. And anytime you have Neil as one of the two guests, it's like doing four shows. It's it's quite exhausting to 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 talk to Neil, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> It, it, yeah. yeah, it can be, but it's all right. We've got through it, I think. I think, yeah. you know, because I, I, I remember I've been going back and listening to some of the episodes and we we were like, oh, COVID's just going to be like this flu virus. Yeah, we missed that one. Scareder and scareder. <laughs> yeah, we kind of, well, nobody saw what? this coming, did they? I mean, we knew it was going to be bad, but we didn't think it was going to be you know, what is it, four months later, we're still kind of in lockdown? Yeah, um, I've been off work three months. And by the time we open, by the time that, you know, that we may open again, it, it might be another another month or, or two months. The, the government, the Welsh government is playing it really close to their chest and they're in charge of opening everything up. So we have no idea at the moment. No. At the moment. No, I mean, we're, we're opening things up here, and every time they open something here, there's a new outbreak, and it gets worse, and people are getting sicker, and now, you know, Florida, the, the Orange County, Florida, which is the county that Disney World is in, has like 15-point-something percent of their population has tested positive for COVID, and they're about to open Disney World back up. I mean, it's not a good idea. Wow. Yeah, it's just it's just insane. But I, I I can see it, it is very dangerous. But then again, I mean, if we don't get the economy working, we're going to be in trouble. It's a very double-edged sword. Yeah, um, I I don't have an answer for it. My only answer is you know I've been working from home and doing uh, doing podcasts. Uh, Talking to talking to Lauren, my one of my favorite people in the entire world. Yeah, I think I, I think when work restarts again, it's just going to be go to work, come come home, and I'm not going to stop off anywhere. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the. I think if I travel by bus, I might take another. Yeah, I think if I travel to if I travel to work by bus, I might go in one set of clothes and take another to change into. Work. Okay, now. Are you going to be changing on the bus? Yeah. Sometimes I catch the bus, like not all the time. Well, yeah, but are you going to change your clothes on the bus? Because I know there's a lot of, like, dirty old men on the bus. No, we're not going to do that, Brian. Tell our listeners that this present. The keychains! Oh, yes! Yes, go ahead, pitch it, tell them. The keychains, I bought you a present. Yes, tell them, tell them about, uh, um, let's give a plug. Well, we sort of, we sort of stole, um the idea from the strange sessions because they had um a very kind listener uh design them send them some sasquatch um key rings and sent it into them and i i um liked them and i've ordered us from this very lovely lady on facebook and i will just and her name is shannon thomason and she makes these delightful keychains. I think she's got an got an Etsy shop, but I couldn't find it. Yeah, they they have to be sent to Brian because um, um, it's very difficult to send stuff to the U to UK in some states at the moment if they're if it's a state that's still not back open yet. 
Shannon Thomas, and she makes she makes these amazing keychains, and we'll post a link in the description of this show um, for her uh, her keychains. You can order keychains. You can get them that say Transatlantic History Ramblings if you'd like. You can have your own Transatlantic History Ramblings keychain. How'd that sound? That sound like professional uh, professional uh, broadcaster right there. Well, I don't know. They might want them in different shapes. I mean, the Sasquatch thing is is pretty much an in joke, really, isn't it? One of our jokes. Yeah, but they they look awesome. And uh, on our uh, Facebook page and and in uh, our Instagram and our Twitter feed, once they come in, we'll post pictures of them. And like I said, we'll post links to her shop. And uh, everyone should support her because she's a good fan of the show. She's a good listener. She's a makes a great keychain and. Uh, we're very happy, and huge shout out to her. Does she listen to us? Of course she does. She does. Oh, that's fantastic. I didn't know. I thought she was just a stranger, because that, oh, that's we got amazing. A, we, hello, Shannon. How are you? Hello, Shannon. Yeah, we got some crossover listeners because of, you know, we did that uh, show with the Strange Sessions, and, you know, I talk about them a lot, and they mm. talk about us a lot because, uh, you know, because... They're my favorite show. We love each other. We do. We do. <laughs> Either that or they're just afraid of us and they're like, we better be nice to them so they don't come on us down. I think it's you. I think it's you they're afraid of. Yeah, it's the accent. It's the accent and the whole poisoning thing. Oh, <laughs> oh that was funny. <laughs> I was just like so blasé about it. Yeah, we, we, we poison them. Like, yeah. Yeah. It was a thing, <laughs> you know. The show we, the last show we did with uh, with Todd, Todd Robbins, which which was amazing. Um, that was a gift to myself. Booking Todd as a guest was was a total gift to myself because I am a I'm a sideshow nut in the history of the sideshow and the freak shows, and and I'm and I'm a fan of Todd's. I've been a fan of Todd's for many many years. But you know how I like to book guests as, as treats to myself, but of course I also do them for Lauren too. And tonight's show is going to be one of those. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, it's a gift for me too because you know I'm a fan. But uh, this one was especially for you because we're bringing on uh, Susan Campbell Bartoletti, um, the great writer, uh, great um, educator, and. You know, she's a Newbery uh, honoree. You know, she's won the Newbery Award. She's won several literary awards. And um, she, she's, she's got a real gift. And, you know, we'll go into it more when we bring her on, obviously. But I just... she She's got this amazing gift to, to write about topics that are very hard to discuss and very hard to... Especially to young readers. And that's, you know, her target audience for a lot of the books is kids and, and teens and young adults. And she's just a remarkable, remarkable woman. And uh, we're not going to be talking as much, and we'll talk about some of her other works, but, you know, her newest book is about the American women's suffrage movement, which, you know, hey, you know. Yes, you're celebrating a very big anniversary there. It's 100 years since women won the right to vote in the USA this year. Yeah, and, and you know we we, we actually have not that you up. can do anything for it because you're all stuck inside. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> well, we can um, we will talk about that obviously with her, <laughs> especially for you because you know you're doing the history of the of the suffrage on the movement on the on the UK side, and 
You know, she just did the the book about. Oh uh, yeah. You know how women won the vote is the name of the book, and uh, even though she's primarily coming on to discuss typhoid. But I think we have time to talk both, don't you? Yeah, I think we'll do. <laughs> I I like Typhoid Mary. She's she, she. You accused me of being Typhoid Mary once. Why well, I I, didn't, I think I called Haru. you. I think I called you COVID Lord or something. Yeah, it was done out of love. But you know, if we're gonna discuss these topics, we better get on to our today. Yeah. In history. 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 Do you love the way uh, we've been, you know, announcing today in history? Right. <laughs> well, it's your yes. turn to go. I'm just first. a bit worried about my. Um, I hope. Yeah, I just, I just want to say something. I know one of my Easter eggs is my impression of James Earl Jones saying this is CNN, and I hope people don't think I'm being disrespectful. I do have a lot of love for James Earl Jones. He is a fantastic actor. We all love James Earl Jones. <laughs> that it was done with love. And we weren't actually making fun of James Earl Jones so much. Every... We were just making fun of uh, you putting on a deep voice. Dramatic voiceovers. Yes. But I think yeah. you better go first with Today in History for June 25th. Okay, so um, on June the 25th in 1876, was in the USA was Custer's Last Stand. So Custer's Last Stand during the Battle of Little Bighorn, 600 men of the U.S. 7th Cavalry, led by George Armstrong Custer, were attacked by 3,000 Native Americans consisting mostly of Sioux and Cheyenne, led by Crazy Horse. With one hour of the attack, every last one of the soldiers were dead. You know, that was going to be my day in history. (laughs) It actually was. Um, Yeah, the, the Battle of Little Bighorn, you know, more commonly known now as Custer's Last Stand was actually Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. I don't know if you know that. They were the two chiefs um, of the uh, Sioux and the Cheyenne tribes. So you had Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull there. Mm. Although, it does remind me that where I live, there used to be um, a little ice cream custard shop called Custard's Last Stand. And I wish it was closer to me because it's so hot, Lauren. I would love a custard. Cold custard? Nah. Custard's got to be warm. Uh, See, that's gross. That's like UK gross. See, custard in America is not the same thing as custard in the UK. Custard in America is like a soft ice cream. Oh, we just call that Mr. Whippy. I call it Mr. Whippy too sometimes. In fact, that was one of the names I almost said in the Richie Knuckles episode, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Okay. I do know what you mean. Um, You know know who was one of the chemists that um, invented Mr. Whippy for Wall's ice cream. <laughs> I don't. Margaret Thatcher. That's, well, I don't want Margaret Thatcher to call me Mr. Whippy. That would be creepy. You don't want, you don't want your custard anymore, do you now? No. Ugh. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alright, so I, I do have a couple other todays in history. And Good. I think I'll go with, um, you know, I'm going to go with a, a much more recent day in history than usual. And uh, in 1984, not the George Orwell book, 1984, the uh, actual year, 1984, June 25th was the day Prince's Purple Rain was released today, 1984, the late Prince and the Purple Rain album leading to you know, the movie and just, you know, 
revolutionized, you know, Prince and the Revolution. They revolutionized music. And uh, that was today. Without it, we wouldn't have Jane Seinable. Were, were you a fan of Prince? Um, a little. I love his music. Yeah. And, you know, that's... That should, was, should that be loved? That was, that was the big one. So uh, that was our days in history. And if we're going to... I just got the beep coming up. So guess what time it almost is. It's guest o'clock. It is guest o'clock. And I am going to bring Susan on. And, and I want to tell you something. Um, when I emailed Susan, uh, just, to, you know, to ask, you know, if she would consider coming on the show. This is the kind of person she's the first thing she said to me in the email back was, oh, stop it. Just call me Susan. I mean, how do you not love that? That is amazing. But, you know, if you hadn't started off by being polite, your mother would have come through the computer screen and smacked you across the head. Uh, are you sure about that? Have you spoken to my mother? I mean... Yeah, but it's just like it's like my parents, you know, you've got to say Mr. or Mrs. or Miss first, and then if they want to, they can correct you, but you can't use their first name before they correct you. You know, you, you know my mother's, like, weirder than I am. And her sense of humor is... Yeah, but she she comes across as a very polite person. Well, yeah, it's smoke and mirrors. I'm kidding, Mom. No, she's a very polite person. She's just got a very wicked sense of humor. That's allowed, but I think manners mean a lot to your mom. They do, um, as, as well they should to everybody, but... Oh, this is going to be a weird edit. Um, but I had to pause and change uh, rooms because of... Uh, crazy sounds outside. That being said, it's guest time tonight, and uh, we have a very, very special guest tonight. Uh, this woman has been given just about every honor um, a writer can be given. She's a Newberry honoree. Um, she writes books for young adults and children that cover topics that you never see in such books. Just the bravery. I mean, she's you know, covered the Hitler Youth and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, and what we're here to talk about tonight, uh, Typhoid Mary, um, something you know near to my heart in history. Uh, you know, the Irish Potato Famine, and most recently, a book about you know the women getting the right to vote in America. But I'm going to bring Susan Campbell Bartoletti on, and you are just gonna you're, you're gonna love her, Lauren. I mean, you two are. So much alike. From what little I've spoken to, I can tell you that we're going to be great. So, Susan, welcome to the show. Um, thank you, Brian and Lauren. It's so good to be here. Oh, thank you. It's lovely to have you here. I, uh, like I said in that intro, I am so amazed that you are willing to cover the topics you do in your books for your intended audience, that uh, it's... It's it's a bravery that's rarely seen. And uh, at what point did you realize, you know, someone's got to tell these stories so people understand it. I'm going to be the one to do it. Um, well, you know, be, before I was a writer, I was an eighth grade English teacher. And I really admired my eighth graders. I credit them with helping me to find my voice as a writer. You know, a writer has to find her 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 subjects. She has to find her audience and she has to find her voice. And what I know about um, these young people is that um, they don't like it when you tell them life isn't fair, and they want to do something about it. I mean, they, um, 
you know, I have a very strong sense of right and wrong. Um, and and so when I re- what I realized is that they're really drawn to these stories that are not often told. And I describe it as looking at, you know, the dark side of of, of history. Uh, and I think what we have to do is shine a light on these areas, because when we shine a light on on subjects like Hitler Youth, about, you know, the nearly nine million young people who followed Adolf Hitler and actually helped the Nazis come into power, when we shine a light on an, uh, um, an American terrorist group like the Ku Klux Klan and how it got started and how its seeds are, you know, we can still see them, the seeds of of their hate at work in different hate groups today. When we shine a light on these things, and when we shine a light on someone by the name of Mary Mallon, who became known as um, Typhoid Mary, and we talk about, um, you know, what somebody who doesn't believe in science, who who doesn't um, trust doctors, who doesn't trust to the government, what the implications are when she is the healthy carrier you know, of a disease. I think that um, it's important. I just, I think it's really, really important that we bring these things out of, you know, that are hidden in history and and we bring them out front where young people and and older readers can learn more about them. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, it's such a common phrase that history is written by the winners, but that means that the dark side of history that is just as much a part of it you know, is usually left unsaid or glossed over. And you actually are doing an amazing job of shining a light on it for young people. Well, you know, like, let's take the book Hitler Youth, for example. Um, it was, I believe, through writing that book um, that gave me the courage to look at our own history and to look at those times when ordinary people and our leaders uh, did not believe that Everyone should enjoy the promises of our Declaration of Independence and the guarantees of our Constitution. And so it's, um, you know, sometimes it's things like that. We're so used to looking outward, perhaps. We're so used to looking at what happened in those terrible 12 years known as the Third Reich without looking at what is happening on our own home front, what has happened and is continuing to happen. Yeah, like you said, continuing to happen because sadly there are still people that believe that not everyone isn't, you know, should be awarded the same rights. And mm-hmm. it, 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 I don't know, it's mind-blowing to me because I just don't understand that mentality. But to study it and you see how it becomes a part of people's psyche and Mm-hmm. it's terrifying. And um, like I said, so few people are willing to discuss that with um, younger people. Yes. And you I, really need to be, you know, you need more awards and more honors given uh, to you because... Well, thank you. And just let me say that W.E.B. Du Bois, I think, had the best explanation for why um, these um, groups happen and why people want... Um, don't want to um, understand that our rights and privileges are um, those that belong to everyone. And he attributed it to fear. Um, They're afraid. They're afraid that if someone else has the right, that it somehow takes away part of their right as if it were a piece of, you know, a pie 
<laughs> if you get a piece of pie, that means there's one less piece for me. It's just not true. Wait a second. Are we talking like chocolate cream pie or apple pie or like <laughs> lemon pie? Because apple pie. And in particular, my mother's homemade apple pie. I was going to say, because I don't eat fruit pies, but if it's like the chocolate or a lemon meringue, no, oh, it's my lemon meringue. Yeah, okay. she does a real mean lemon meringue, yeah. Sorry, Lauren, I, I just love pie. <laughs> I'm a fat that, guy, I have to say that. <laughs> is that um, more or less than duff swings? Ooh, you know, if you have pie after eating duff swings. Now, Susan, you're in Pennsylvania, correct? Yes. See, I'm in Buffalo, New York. And if you ever get up to Buffalo, New York, I will take you for the best chicken wings on the planet. As the long as anchor? you're not vegetarian. Is it the anchor? Not the anchor. Everyone thinks that, but Duff's oh, wings. Oh, good to know. Duff's are the best. Oh, how do you spell D-U-F-F? D-U-F-F-S. And if oh. you ever make it up to Buffalo, you let me know, and I will take you out for a feast of Duff's. Well, I will take you up on that. I love Buffalo wings. Oh, yeah, and these are the best. You will, um, ooh, it's just, ah, I love fucking Duff's Wings because I'm hoping they will start giving me free stuff. <laughs> we'll advertise for them. Absolutely. I'll give them a, an acknowledgement in my next book. Yes. Well, once you have them, you will. I'll tell you, because you'll be like, you'll write a whole book about them. Okay. Although that'll be the positive side of history, how Duff's Wings can make the world a better place. Okay, maybe they just need a dedication then. Because, <laughs> you know, I don't do positive stuff. <laughs> no, well, you could, yeah. They will change your whole attitude. <laughs> um, but what I what I was saying earlier is what I really wanted to bring you on now, um, well, A, because I wanted to talk to you anyway, <laughs> but with our, you know, recent pandemic, and so many people not believing in the science. And, you know, I'm still talking to people every day who tell me it's a hoax. Uh, to, uh, 5G hoax? Yeah. To talk about, you know, poor Mary, typhoid Mary. Because Lauren got a little mad in one episode where I said if she continued to go to work, I was going to call her COVID Lauren. <laughs> well, yes. Um, you know, typhoid Mary, She she's a very interesting study because... Um, in this book that I wrote called Terrible Typhoid Mary, I always find reader reaction um, very interesting. Uh, they empathize and they sympathize with Mary Mallon um, until she um, ends up not um, abiding by the terms of her probation. And she um, doesn't show up to meet with what would who would have been her probation officer. She fails to check in with the New York City um, Health Department. And nobody notices that she goes missing. And she changes her name and she gets a job at a women's hospital, the Sloan um, Women's Hospital. And then typhoid fever uh, race, you know, just kind of races through the, um, the hospital. In fact, there's something like 25 workers come down, mostly doctors and nurses and medical, um, you know, me members of the medical staff. And... They realize that they have hired Mary Mallon, Typhoid Mary, who is now a cook in their kitchen. And and that's when readers' um, sympathy ends, because how could she dare to do that? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, it's funny because a lot of people who will talk about Mary, they stop the story before they get to that. Yes, um, yes. 
it's almost like they want to put her on a on a on a martyr level when she kind of really doesn't deserve it. <laughs> right now, I will say um, there are some things that she did not deserve. Okay, no, no so... one deserves typhoid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, she didn't know she had it. Um, I'm going to give her that. She definitely had it at some point in her life. Maybe she was too young to remember it. Maybe it was a very mild case. But in order for her to carry um, the, the typhoid um, bacteria in her system, and, and let me make that clear, it's a bacteria that causes it. It's a form of the salmonella bacteria. Um, and today's COVID is caused, of course, by a virus. Um, back then in 1907, um, as typhoid was just ravaging um, New York City and other places, uh, they did not have penicillin. They did not have a vaccine. We didn't get penicillin until like the 1940s. Okay, so today we get a bacterial infection and we trust um, antibiotics to take care of it. But it's the viruses that are much harder to kill. Um, And so she carried this in her system and she denied ever having it. And the man who um, found her out, this Dr. George Soper, you know, there's this whole thing where in 1907, there are certain ideals that um, were held about what a woman should be. All right. A woman should be should work at home. She should be in the domestic sphere. She should be pious. Um, she should be submissive. And Mary was none of those things. So already, you know, this there is this um, we call it the cult of true womanhood and. A true woman was these things, and Mary was not these things. And so right there she had a strike against her because when George Soper discovered where she was working and showed up at that kitchen and told her, Mary, you're not washing your hands after you use the toilet, Um, you have bad habits, and she was greatly offended. He asked for samples of blood, urine, and stool, and in 1907, it's like, this was very personal. And so... In, in, 20, in 2020, it's a little personal. Yeah, it's personal. Nobody wants to talk about it. And so she, um, he didn't notice that there was a carving fork, you know, on the counter there. And she immediately grabs the carving fork and she goes to attack him. Now, fortunately, he fled. And so she, you know, but he felt like a real woman. All he wanted to do is explain this to her. Why didn't she understand? Well, she didn't understand because he was coming from a, you know, this authoritative position. He was telling her she was dirty and he was threatening her livelihood. So, you know, she has come to be known as someone who was unclean. And that's simply not true. If you think about the work that a, a, a cook does in a kitchen, um, her hands are in and out of hot water, you know, all day long as she's cooking. Um, she certainly had clean hands. She must have had a clean kitchen because she worked for some of the wealthiest families in New York City. They certainly wouldn't keep um, a dirty cook um, in their employ. And the other thing is the the, the servants, um, you know, that she would, the other staff members seemed to like her. And so... He, um, you know, he, he's really responsible for creating this image that crops up in people's minds the minute they hear um, the phrase typhoid Mary. 
Now, now, she was probably infecting people as early as, as 1899, 1900, correct? Oh, very possible. Um, especially if she had this um, bacteria, if she indeed had typhoid fever as a young person, she came here as a young teenager. We're estimating probably around the age of 14. And in... Um, and so she may have been her, you know, she came here alone from Ireland. She came from County Tyrone. Uh, we know that her parents had to have survived the, um, the Great Irish Famine. Um, and she was born shortly thereafter, I think, what was the year, 1869 or something like that. So she comes over alone. She would have come in steerage. That was a pretty um, dangerous thing to do for a young girl at that time. And she lives with her aunt and uncle in New York City, who die sometimes soon after. And I don't know how they died. I mean, did they get typhoid? That's be interesting to find out. Yeah, yeah. And so here she now is this young person alone in New York City, and she has to um, support herself. And so she supports herself, as many um, Irish immigrants did, as a domestic servant. She worked her way up, you know, the domestic servant ladder, ultimately becoming a cook. And that was a decent-paying job uh, for someone like Mary at that time. Actually, yeah, I was going to say, it's a fairly respectable position for a, In a house, an Irish yes. immigrant, especially a young female yes. Irish immigrant. Yes, we've all seen Downton Abbey, we know. <laughs> we know. <laughs> I, uh, I come from a family of, of Irish immigrants who were canal diggers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the potato famine brought us here. Yes, yes. And uh, I'm sure my ancestors would have loved to have been cooks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. And so when her job is threatened, of course, um, you know, what choices did she have? Flight, freeze, flee, and she told she chose to fight. Um so George Soper was very upset when he left her, and um, then he decides he's going to stalk her and find out where she lives. And he finds that she's been spending her evenings. Now, some people say nights, but I have never found any proof that she overnighted at uh, her friend's apartment. And August Bryhoff, who was this 50-something-year-old man who was an unemployed police officer who spent his days at the corner pub. And when George Soper saw his apartment, he remarked that it was dirty. And not only was it dirty, that um, August had um, a very mangy, this large black dog that was very mangy. And he makes arrangements with Bryhoff. And I, we don't know how he did it. I feel like he must have paid him off um, so that George and um, another man, his colleague, could wait at that apartment for when Mary came. And again, she became outraged and she swore and she fled. Well, as well, I would have too. Yeah, and now he's really upset. You know, she uses language that a woman should not use. Yeah, Lauren, don't use that language. <laughs> and um, and he decides that there is something very masculine about um, the way Mary walks and her mind. And so he's always already constructing her as this other, you know, um, a different class, a different sort of person, well, someone who's not quite 
um, a, you know, a true woman in his mind. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's almost like he's alluding to lesbianism at the same time accusing her of having an illicit love affair with an older man. Yes, yes. So, you know, pick your poison, dude. Come on. Yes, yes. And and so, you know, he's um, he's describing her, you know, in this way. And, of course, when we... When Pete was when someone wants to mistreat another person, what do they do? But they make an other out of that person. And I'm not saying that he wanted to mistreat her, but he had to, in his mind, um, figure out a way to understand that this was okay um, to treat her and to approach her in this way. So the next thing he does is he decides maybe a woman will have more luck convincing Mary to go to the hospital. So he sends. Dr. Josephine Baker, and nobody warns Dr. Baker about the carving fork, about the fact that Mary might attack her, and so when Dr. Baker shows up with, um, she had uh, four police officers with her, four or five, and when she shows up in the kitchen, Mary runs again, and she runs and she manages to scale a fence. Now, I don't know, 30, she's 30, late 30s, and she can still scale a fence. I'm impressed. And nobody can find her. And so they search for a couple of hours, and Dr. Baker is very upset. And then one of the police officers noticed that a piece of calico is sticking out of um, a closet, like a, a, maybe a, a, some sort of closet on the, on the outside of the house. And there are rubbish tins, bins um, in front of the closet. And they, re- they recognize the calico, like, oh, that's the dress Mary had on. And so, sure enough, they get her hiding in the closet. And it takes four police officers to extract her and get her into the ambulance. And Dr. Baker sits on top of Mary all the way down to the Willard Parker Hospital, where she is um, in quarantine for the f- first time. And what I just want to point out about that is, to me, that's proof that she was respected. There's some sort of uh, solidarity here because who put the rubbish bins in front of the closet? I, I love the fact that it took four to get her out of the closet and they had yeah, to sit down. Me too. That, that's yeah, the best bit. Yeah. So, um, down at the hospital, you know, they they take her clothing, they give her her you know her a hospital wear a gown to wear and her white bathrobe and. They just wait, and Mary's stubborn, and she puts off using the toilet as long as she can, and finally, when she cannot put it off any longer, she uses it, and voila, you know, the hospital staff has her samples, and they say, yes, indeed, it's tested. She does indeed carry the dreaded bacteria. Mm. She, uh, you know, kind of continued to spread it, and that's... That's my issue with her. Yes. She, um, you know, George Soper, what I love is he shows up again. It's like, Mary, come on, you know, all you got to do is have your gallbladder removed. Work with me on this and, and we'll write a book and you'll get some of the proceeds. So he offers her what we'd call a book deal. Which is not a bad idea. <laughs> you know? And uh, she says, no. Well, she didn't even answer. She just got up. She looked at him. And she went into the toilet closet and she shut the door (laughs) and she wouldn't come out. 
You know, and I don't want to like Mary, but I do. <laughs> Just for things like that. <laughs> well, because I'm Irish. I understand it. Well, you know, if you look at George Soper's writings about her, he wrote six or seven articles about Mary. And each one time he writes an article about her, he adds more and more and more details. So that the last article that he writes, he calls it the curious career of typhoid Mary. And it's almost as if it's like, a, um, I don't know, a Nancy Drew mystery. <laughs> right? Hardy boys? Well, you know, he's given her the nickname. He's given her, you know, it, it's, it's, he was planning the book already. It was salesmanship. I mean, <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Um, and what I love, too, is then she gets to, you're going to love her even more when, you know, she gets to North Brother Island where she spends the first couple of years in quarantine. And she keeps writing these threatening letters to George Soper and um, Josephine Baker. You know, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> wow. And, you know, later, Dr. Baker says, you know, like, I, I understand how she felt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think in that situation, we all would have, um, well, I don't know if we yeah. have written the threatening letters. <laughs> and then um, the next part I like is that, you know, now her stool samples are sent to two different laboratories. One is the, um, the, the, um, the government, the city's government laboratory, and the other is the private laboratory, the Ferguson Laboratories. And in order to get the samples there, the man who betrayed her, August Breihoff, he um, has to pick up the samples. So he has to take a ferry over to North Brother Island, pick up her samples, and deliver them to the Ferguson Laboratories. And in those samples, uh, no, no bacteria ever shows up. But in the other laboratory, the one that the city runs, they do show up. And so, like, I'm, you know, I'm wondering about this. Like, okay, you know, we know that he spent his time in a pub. Um, maybe he would, he took too long to get, the samples to the laboratory or is it possible he switched them out that's what i was thinking i was thinking <laughs> he dropped it he left the sample on the ferry or something and it's like <laughs> forgive the language but oh shit i need more shit <laughs> <laughs> and he's like well i better get to work and maybe it was his that they got well you know he had some he had some making up to do well, yeah, I feel now. bad for the person who would have found that package on the ferry. <laughs> yeah. Wow. She um. She went on to have a fairly long life, though. Fairly long. She died in her late sixties. Um, you know, she got out of quarantine. Um, she went to court, and it's believed that uh, William Randolph Hearst, who liked to take on stories of the underdog. You know, he was a champion of the underdog. And even though his At headlines were, they were horrible headlines that I can just imagine these newsboys hawking on the streets of New York City, you know, human typhoid factory. Well, you like, know, Hearst was also um, a reputable yellow journalist, even from yes. the get-go. So. Yes, he invented it, right? He, yeah, and he knew Joseph how to sell. The, yes. And so, um, you know, they think that he hired the lawyer who ended up getting Mary's case heard. Because what troubles people is that this woman was um, picked up 
and she calls herself a kidnapped woman. She was arrested. She was sentenced to quarantine and never had her day in court. And we do have this um, stat, this thing in our Constitution about habeas corpus, where you get to um, appear before your accusers, like you get your day in court. So I think the loophole there was that uh, she was sentenced to quarantine, but I don't think she was criminally charged for that, was she? But she was arrested. Well, I mean, her rights were taken away. I'm not defending yes. her. I'm just yes. saying I think that's their excuse was we it didn't criminally charge her. Yeah. We're not saying you're an outlaw, Mary. <laughs> we're just, just, we're just you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so then, um, anyway, so she does eventually um, get uh, released under the conditions that she report to um, the probation officer that I mentioned earlier. And she listens. And she does. But then her friend August Breihoff dies. And possibly she had no no other means of support. She was doing work as a laundress, which is very hard work for somebody who now would be in her, you know, 40s or, you know, early 40s. And one day she just doesn't show up. And that's when she changed her name and found, you know, employment elsewhere and ultimately then at that Sloan Women's Hospital. Yeah, and that and that's where the fun and games and all the laughter has to go because mm-hmm. she is criminally negligent at that point. Yes, but now let's remember that there were men who were criminally negligent as well, and yeah. they were um, found to be um, healthy carriers as well, and they were um, given. Um, reprieve in the sense that you know the judge felt sorry for one man because he had a wife and children so no we're not going to quarantine you and other men um, were told okay you know just don't do that anymore whatever their profession was one man was selling candy and ice cream and he infected um, many people Uh, another man was known to have infected 110 people and and so you had cases, and nobody know, remembers Andrew Morsh's, Morsh's name. Nobody remembers the names of these other men. But we do remember Mary Mallon's name as Typhoid Mary. And that's where I ask, um, you know, if a man had been cooking in that hospital, would we be as outraged? I hope so. I, I, sadly... I think it's just a fact that we had a doctor who was trying to sensationalize a story to sell. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, to the public, Typhoid Mary's far more intriguing than Typhoid Gary or Typhoid Barry. (laughs) And that is true. And the reason it's more intriguing is I still think in this day and age, um, she still... um, does not hold up to certain ideals and standards that are um, held for women. You know, it's it, we we know that when um, a woman's reputation is ruined, it is much harder for her to recover it uh, oh, than for a man. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like you even said, it they could write things about her to make her more um, almost villainous and scary 
Because you're trying to scare the public with the story, too. You know, the nice guy with the wife and kids isn't scary, but, you know, this woman who dresses and walks like a man, wink, wink, (laughs) you know, is very easy to turn into a villain. And since so many domestics were women, it made um, the class of people, middle class and upper class families who hired domestics, very wary of their servants. Yeah, I would be. Mm -hmm. Of course, I wouldn't have been able to have servants being, you know, the Irish immigrant, too. (laughs) I'd have been at the pub. (laughs) I'd have been dropping poop on a trolley. (laughs) Hey, Andrew, have you tried this one? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, Lauren, um, I know you have a particular fascination with typhoid mary as well we've discussed it before do you have any questions you'd like answered about her um i know that at the end of her life she was made to live alone was she okay with that did she protest against that again and send death threats to anybody or was she just sort of quietly accepting of that end well she had this little cottage on on north brother island and um she said you know as soon as she got there, she was a peeping Tom, she said, for everyone. And so they they said that she would keep her draperies drawn and everything because people who visited the island, photographers, journalists, wanted to get a picture of her. Um, she did have a little dog on, on the island, and she did have friends. Um, she made friends with um, some of the people, the do- one of the um, nurses who worked there, one of the doctors who worked there. And what I admire about those friendships is that um, the friendships that she made, the, 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 her friends never talked about her. That's now, remarkable. Yeah. And, and, I mean, so George Soper, when he would write about her, he would describe her as this loner, as if she, no one liked her and she had no friends. Um, she, the second period after she was found at the, the Sloan um, Hospital, when she was returned to um, North Brother Island, um, she found they gave her work there to do, and they she eventually worked herself into a position in the laboratory. And they said that she was, you know, such a very good worker, always showed up on time, never late. She even earned a day off. And on that day off, she was allowed to take the ferry and go shopping or go visit um, a one particular friend and the family. And then she would come back. And so she sort of resigned herself to, um, you know, what her life was going to be on the island. Well, she'd gone through enough. I, I think she was probably tired by that point. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, you know what? There's, why fight it? Yeah. And, I mean, she would never give in and say, well, I must have it. She continued to believe that she was a kidnapped woman who was robbed of her livelihood and robbed of her freedom. But given one hell of a nickname. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she did. Um, you know, I I think that her one, um, when she died, there were nine people who attended her funeral. And one of them was the, you know, this friend that she would visit um, off the island, Alexandra Plavska and her daughter, Julie. And I liked what Julie said about... Um, Mary Mallon, you know, she didn't give up too much information, but she said about the funeral, she said, 
I remember the cemetery and the loneliness of it. We all need someone, and I think my mother answered Mary's needs and that she was missing most of her life. That's really sweet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and her, her, her will tells us a lot about her as well, because by the time when she died, she had saved more than $4,800 wow. just from her hospital work, and that's the equivalent of about $63,000 today. And, you know, it tells us that she remained a woman of faith because she left $200 to um, a priest who had visited her. Um, she gave $250 to Catholic charities. It, um, she left money to friends whom um, she cared for and whom, who had helped her. And most of her estate went to Adelaide offspring. Um, she... Um, she, that was about $4,000. Maybe it's horrible of me, but I love this image of Mary becoming like Garbo and just kind of secluding <laughs> herself and people trying to get pictures of her. And There aren't yeah. many photographs known of her, actually, are there? No, no. Um, there are a couple of, of photographs that are, um, you know, from the time when she was first on North Brother Island. And I think there is only maybe one snapshot of her uh, later in life um, when she was in her 60s. Not long, probably. I don't know if it was, be- I think it was probably before her stroke. Yeah, because the, the, the common image you see is the one of her lying in the bed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, you know, what I found from writing her story is, I mean, there's such a danger in writing a person's life from a historical vantage point. Um, because, you know, when we look back, we can be kind of smug about history and say, oh, but look at the dots yeah, and see, and see how they're connected. And, you know, when I think of Mary and I think of the people today who think that the coronavirus is a hoax, you know, and we think, well, if only you understood, if you only understood perhaps the facts of germ theory, if only you would trust science, you know, um, and for some people who are continuing to work because work is so essential, it's like, you know, for Mary, she didn't have any other options. There were no government programs. There was no unemployment. There was no retraining. There was no welfare. And, you know, if only um, the health department could have offered her retraining or different work. And we see this today where, you know, fortunately people have unemployment. But is it enough? Is that amount of money enough to keep them from going into work and getting sick and, and passing the virus on. Sadly, it, it, it's not in some cases, and that's the tragedy. of the, the real tragedy, especially of today, is that we know how it spreads. We know how easy it spreads. We yes. know how to try to stop it and help prevent the spread. And it's not the people that are having to go into work to survive or that. It's really the people that are just ignoring it mm-hmm. and, like you said, not believing the science, not yes. listening, not taking it seriously. And unfortunately, they're doing it more out of political than scientific huh. reasons. Mm. Well, it's that American sense of freedom, you know, individual yeah. freedom. And, you know, it's when I say about people going into work, you know, are the... Are the employers, are the company owners making sure that safe practices are in place? 
We hear about the meat packaging and how close these people have to stand. You know, we, we see how easy it spreads, but we also see how easy it is to prevent it. Washing hands, mm-hmm. um, maintaining physical distance, um, in some cases social distance, um, wearing a face mask. Yeah, not and, going to a pool party and not going yes. to the beach. Yes, yes. Although, you know, I'm, I'm an Irish fat guy. I don't want to go to a pool or a beach even if there was no corona. <laughs> I would just burn and make people laugh. And yeah, you're talking to a couple of gingers here, so. Oh, okay, awesome. Now, I also I, I I I'd be remiss if I didn't do this. I have to bring up your newest book, which I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. But you and Lauren have quite a bit in common. Um, your newest book, all about um, how women won the vote which is ironically called How Women Won the Vote, <laughs> about the, uh, the, you know, the American woman's fight for equal rights. And Lauren is currently working on a book very similarly about the suffrage um, struggle in the UK. So I would love, and, and, you know, we're celebrating a pretty big anniversary here in America this year. Yes, we are. Yes. So um, if you don't mind telling our audience a little bit about your new book and, uh, you know, you're going to make Lauren drool and salivate and want to jump all over this conversation. So. <laughs> oh, well, I love knowing that Lauren is working on the same subject. I think the more books, um, the more writers who uh, who cover these important subjects, um, the better. And we should always have um, different points of view and different voices um, so that readers can really get a, a full sense Um of such a subject. But yeah, my book, um, I got really interested in this subject, um, especially because, you know, it's the story really of the suffrage movement, which was stalling by the year, um, you know, 1910. Uh, you know, women here were asking for the right to vote. And the women um, in in Great Britain had figured out, the suffragettes had figure, figured out, like, no more asking. It's time to demand. And what we had is two American women who did not know one another, but who ended up overseas um, to study. And as they were studying in uh, England, um, they became, each one became involved in this, the suffrage movement. And so they're in England. And they take um, part in the, their first demonstration, which um, was June 29th, 1909. And these women um, demonstrated they were heading down to Parliament because they wanted to speak to the prime minister. You know, women, uh, men were allowed to often spoke to him. Women wanted also to he- have their voices heard, that they wanted to demand the vote. And so the women all bundled up. You know, they stuffed their clothing. Um, they 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 wore you know even some heavy plasters they to protect themselves because they knew that there was a great big chance that there would be violence. And sure enough, they marched. And as they got to Parliament, they saw that police officers had surrounded Parliament. Thousands of police officers, something like three thousand police officers, surrounded Parliament. Because um, they, you know, they needed to protect the prime minister from 250 women. 
And then uh, women demanded uh, to be let in, led by Emmeline Pankhurst. And when um, the chief inspector refused, Emmeline Pankhurst was shoved by a police officer. A police officer shoved her. And so she uh, slapped him twice. And now she was arrested and seven of the her members of her delegation were arrested as well. And then um, the women started to charge the gate to the gate to force their way in um, in rows. And the police officers um, then attacked the women. And so 109 women were arrested and taken to the Cannon Row uh, police station. And I love this because this is where Alice Paul, the one American, met the other American, uh, Lucy Burns. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, who wouldn't want to meet their new best friend after being arrested in a police station? So that just really intrigued me. Um, so they, they took part in uh, the movement over there. Alice's mother kept saying, please come home, please come home. You know, um, Alice wasn't ready to come home even after she, you know, she was released from the police station. Um, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns and Emmeline Pankhurst hopped in a motor car driven by uh, this really interesting woman by the name of Vera Jack Home, who was, who was uh, a chauffeur. And it was the first time that Alice had ever seen a woman drive a car acting as a chauffeur and so she and lucy protested engaged in protests throughout england and scotland they kept getting arrested and they were um they would go on hunger strikes well news of these arrests would reach alice's mother who lived in new jersey and so a new york times reporter rushes to mrs paul's house and Alice's mother says, I cannot understand how all this came about. Alice is such a mild-mannered girl. And so the headline was, you know, Alice Paul puzzles mother. <laughs> Which is awesome because Alice kept writing these really long letters home and in great detail she would tell her mother what was going on. Um, but, you know, apparently, um, you know, I think what her mother was playing dumb at that point. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> well, maybe her mother really couldn't understand. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Lauren has showed me a lot of the research she's been doing. And, and, you know, some of these women were notoriously mild-mannered women. But when they became the activists, I mean, that fire just took over. Yes. You know... Yes. However, Alice Paul came, was a Quaker, and she came from a long line of Quakers, many of whom um, had stood up for their beliefs and um, were imprisoned. And so it was definitely in her DNA. <laughs> yeah, and Lauren, um, you know, your book focuses a lot on the, the arrests of these women, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And the Rush trial, uh, the Rush, the Great Russian Parliament, which is what Susan was describing, was a major major incident the women were often severely beaten by police and some of them it's been discovered um were sexually assaulted by the policemen so because they felt that they were breaking the social norms of what a woman should be they weren't the you know the angel of the home as they should have been and so they were feeling a feeling that they were teaching them a lesson and the same thing would happen in prison 
Um, there's one account of a suffragette being force fed and then getting up to leave and the doctor slaps her and says, well, maybe you'll be a good girl next time. Mm. So it's just, it, and I think that again, fueled the anger that, um, that, that led to them to, to take these courses of actions because for hundreds of years, they'd been asking for um, fair education rights, um, fairness in divorces and in marriages where women became property as soon as got married everything that you owned stopped being yours and now belonged to someone else and you had to go and ask them if you could have money and if they refused then they could refuse so there was a lot of suppression in their life that led them to act out this way and we can add that i mean women weren't even mothers were not even um, entire entitled to guardianship of their own children they, they belonged yeah. to the man as well they did mm-hmm. and it was uh, Richard Pankhurst Emmeline Pankhurst's husband that worked to get a lot of women rights within divorce and within marriage and he once told his daughters that he didn't know why women were still asking nicely for things that if he had been a woman that he would rise up and start scratching people's eyes out to get what he wanted so you know there was there was a growing frustration even with the men that supported the women as to why they were still taking it good-naturedly and still not rising up and taking arms against against parliament against government because let's face it if men had been suppressed to the extent that women had been suppressed that they'd have taken up they'd have started a war about it there'd have been a lot more violence than actually happened within the suffragette movement and the suffrage movement. Though the suffrage, the suffrages, the suffrages, uh, there were more peaceful than the suffragettes. And, and that's what happened here where when Alice came home and um, she was, bringing some of these strategies and tactics to the um, American suffragists, uh, she she defended what the British did. She defended their protests. She defended their hunger strikes. She said, you must resort to unusual tactics to wake them up over there. And that's what she brought here, and that is what ultimately um, began to work to wake people up here as, as well. So funny how the tide has turned that, you know, the Americans look to the Brits for the strength and the encouragement, and uh, we almost kind of laugh at their uh, lack of strength now as Americans. We've become quite arrogant about that. Well, we're getting some of, um, we're learning some humility here, I would say. Oh, we we are. (laughs) Uh, Lauren reminds me of that all the time. Yes. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, with Alice, um, her, her um, name kept appearing in American newspapers, especially, you know, the Philadelphia newspapers, um, the New York newspapers. And uh, when she decides to come home after spending 30 days in Holloway prison where she was um, force fed, uh, she wrote to her mother and said, I hope I'll never have to see my name in the paper again. And, of course, you know, the minute she sets foot here, her name appears um, again and again and again. Um, 
and she's this quiet little person. Like it, they, you know, they described her energy as just being like one of those people who has this burning energy inside, and you can just feel it. But she's quiet, like me. <laughs> I can tell. Quiet. We have letters complaining about. We have emails complaining about you, Brian. <laughs> Yeah, isn't that unfair? I, we get emails occasion, occasionally <laughs> where people say, I love the show, but Brian's obnoxious, but I want Lauren to read bedtime stories to me. Aww. <laughs> um, it, it's, the, it, you know, the, like I said bef- right before we went to this topic, this is a big year um, for the women's right to vote. This is a pretty big anniversary this year. Um, yeah, it is absolutely a, a very big anniversary. And, you know, it's interesting to me how, you know, we can look at history and just see how things line up. Um, you know, where we have this big first major parade, Women's March on Washington in 1913. And as Lauren mentioned, you know, um, the angel, what did you call it? The angel of the home? Oh, yes, the angel of the home, yeah. Yeah, okay. And, and like, the streets historically have belonged to men. And when they're parades, they were parades, you know, of men. And now you have parades of women. You have 5,000 or more women marching down Pennsylvania Avenue demanding the right to vote. Um, it was right after a major election. It was um, the election of Woodrow Wilson. Um, he was. It was the day before his inauguration, and they really had some hope. You know, now that they had gotten rid of Taft, who called women too hysterical to vote, um, they really had some hope that you know Woodrow Wilson, if she, if Alice Paul could just explain it to him in terms that he would understand, <laughs> that he, he had the support of Congress um, because that had also gone Democratic. And so surely, um, if he could just ex- she could just explain it to him, he would um, understand and he would push it right through. And uh, as it turned out, um, the uh, march turned into a riot of, of sorts because they did not have enough police. They, she wanted more than 100 policemen. And um, the uh, chief of police, uh, Richard Sylvester, said, no, 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 I don't really have that many to spare. I'll send you Boy Scouts. <laughs> So, you know, the Boy Scouts were there and um, the, 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 the parade just turned completely unruly. Um, there were men, house, you know, who were, uh, had been out drinking. They were hollering things like, a, you know, it, the women were a disgrace. The place of women is in the home. One man shouted, I hope the sidewalk falls through. I, I just um, want to know what kind of merit badge you get for going to that. <laughs> and then... Um, one woman noticed like these men were just pressing against these ropes and breaking the barriers. And she yells out, girls, get out your hat pins. They're going to rush us. <laughs> Isn't that a great image? <laughs> I just, it's so amazing how important these women were to history. I mean, and, and even to, to this day, I mean, the 19th Amendment passing 100 years ago, I mean, this is the 100th anniversary, and we have a presidential election coming up that every insider and political expert says is going to be determined by the woman's vote. Yes, absolutely. I was just 
reading that today. And um, yeah, and so, and in fact, you know, the women's vote, 8 million women voted, it's estimated that 8 million women voted for the first time um, in 1920. Yeah. Um, and so they did help, you know, decide that election. Um, but yeah, there, you know, they're just, you see this, you see the, um, you know, you see the, the march. And then we, of course, we had the big women's march of 1917, of, of 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we had in, in subsequent years, we've been having um, the, the women's um, marches uh, because we still don't have the ERA. And so the Equal Rights Amendment and um, other things that we see that I can find some, you know, links to. Um, there was, um, you know, four years after that big march on Washington in 1917, the women started standing outside the White House with banners. And, you know, one man <laughs> wrote to the newspaper and he schooled at the women for these banners. He said they had bad manners and mad banners. <laughs> And then, um, and they were silently protesting. So this was like a very, um, it was a, they called them the silent sentinels. They were protesting silently, only with words on their banners. And then the night before uh, Woodrow Wilson's um, second inauguration, hundreds of women staged a grand picket and they circled the White House. And what did Woodrow Wilson do? He ordered the guards to lock the gates. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Well, I would. Well, I don't know if he had a bunker, you know? <laughs> he, was, uh, he was in the bunker. <laughs> I don't know. Do you think he had a bunker? And, you know, Alice's mother didn't approve of this. And so she wrote to her daughter and she said, Dear Alice, I wish to make a protest against the methods you're adopting in annoying the president. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I love the fact that the... Um, the women of today, especially the young women of today, realize the importance of their voice and their vote. Yes. And if more could just, and if, if it keeps rolling that way, and they realize uh, you're the majority, your mm-hmm. voices matter more than you think. Well, look what um, young people did with TikTok. Yes. Right? And social media. And, you know, I think like, you know, this is, it's not, it's, it's young women, but it's also, you know, young boys, young men who um, are understanding the power that they can have. Um, I want to mention something because I want to encourage people to run it out and get this book. Okay. How women won the vote. It's um, published by Harper. It's illustrated by Zui Chen. She does beautiful full color illustrations, but there are also, um, Lots of archival images and contemporaneous memorabilia in this book as well. But I want to point out that there is, um, I I inserted a joke on um, one page. And on one page of this book, uh, when the women were spreading out across the United States um, to encourage the women who did have the right to vote in some of the western um, states and territories, that um, they had motorcades, they got in cars, and they rode, they had motorcades that went to Washington. They had, Lucy Burns got up in a biplane, in an airplane over the city of Seattle, and she 
threw out, um, she was tossing pamphlets down. And then women got on trains to head to the Western states as well. And so my joke on this page is, of course, a nod um, to the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Because <laughs> there are images. But then, like Lucy in that biplane, in my mind, and I couldn't do this um, caption because, you know, they wouldn't let me. I wanted it was Lucy in the sky with pamphlets. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't let you? <laughs> no, they wanted it a little bit, you know, a little bit more. <laughs> so. And, yeah. Such an amazing book. You, people, you have to go out and get this book. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And we're going to post a link uh, to your website. Oh, great. In the description. and Okay. I know Lauren's uh, probably ordering it as we speak. <laughs> I heard something. <laughs> um, we are getting close to running out of time, but I want two things. First off, I have a couple more real quick questions, but also sure. I want to make sure you will come back on the show. Anytime you want to talk about any topic, you are more than welcome. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Oh, we would love to have you back on again. This has just been amazing. But the first question, I think this could be a, a new book idea for you, too. Ooh, I'm, I got my pencil. Okay. Pluto, is it still oh, a planet or no. not? Oh, <laughs> I think it's back in planet status. Oh, what was that? Isn't it back in planet status? It is. Oh, we're in my not world. talking about Walt Disney, right? Not not Disney's Pluto. No, I'm 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 hashtag pro planet Pluto. Okay. Yeah, I'm with you. All right. See Lauren? Yeah, I'm gonna stop asking everybody. It's an obsession now. It's getting weird. <laughs> it's a little weird. I uh, Lauren got really embarrassed. We actually we had Professor Lawrence Krauss on and I asked him. <laughs> um the other question, because Lauren is from Swansea, Wales, mm. the greatest thing to ever come out of Wales, is it not Tom Jones? Um, what's new, Pussycat? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think the greatest thing to come out of Wales was um, my grandfather. Okay. That's mm-hmm. a good answer. Yes. Mm-hmm. We will accept that. Dylan Thomas and, oh yeah, and Lauren, but I, I still outside of Lauren, I still say Tom Jones. Okay, well, my grandfather, Murden Reese. And do, you said you still have family in uh, in Scotland, correct? I do. My um, my son went over to, for grad school, met a lass, and never came home. <laughs> That's how it works. I'm uh, telling you, and if you knew her, you'd understand. She's lovely. That's. Uh, all these people that we've had on the show want to go over to Wales just to meet Lauren. That's oh, I would love to meet you, Lauren. I'd love to meet you, too. It'd be fantastic. My my plan is to, because um, I want to walk the streets where um, my grandfather and his family um, lived. And, of course, I can't remember the name. I know it's near Cardiff. But, uh, Martha? Yeah, I, I don't know the name of it. Um but my yeah. So anyway, I want to walk those streets, and I it's calling to me. I'll bet you I know which town it wasn't. Which town? Go ahead, Lauren. Say it. Oh, what? Shanvair Pushkun Gecko Gairech Gwindrovo Go Go Go. That one. That's an actual town in Wales. I I I believe I believe it. I I don't know all the words, but it sounds so similar to when I was studying um, Irish. 
Welsh is an interesting language. <laughs> we discovered yeah. on this show. <laughs> well, you know, I I also loved um, Wales from from Gavin and Stacey. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, that's near. That's near the, um, That's near Cardiff as well, Barry Island. Okay. Yeah. Oh, this has been just incredible, it has. And, I, and I really sincerely hope you do agree to join us again. Well, thank you. I will um, let you know. I I do have another. I have a co-edited book coming out in September, but I'm working on a novel that should be out next year, and so I will I will um, hunt you down. You better, and when you and when everything clears up and uh, we're no longer in quarantine, mm-hmm. you must make it up to Buffalo, and I will get you the best oh, feast of the best wings. It's a date. It sounds good. All right. Thank you so much. And Lauren, before we sign off, do you have anything else to do you have anything else to add? No, I don't. No. All right. <laughs> well, good luck with your book, um, you. Lauren, and don't forget Vera, Jack, home. I won't forget. Thank you very much for the name. Thank you. Thank You're you. Welcome. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, Lauren, what did you think? <gasps> that was amazing. I really enjoyed it. Was such fascin- it was such a fascinating talk to hear all about Mary and to talk a bit about suffragettes as well. I knew you'd like that. That was, uh, that was my little special bonus treat for you there. Thank you. You're very kind to me. Oh, I, I do my best. I mean, you, you listened to, to me and Todd Robbins talk about Sideshows and Freaks last time, you know. And this one um, was my little gift to you, even though I enjoyed it every bit as much as you did, as you could tell. Uh-huh. <laughs> and soon my gift to you will be arriving, the keychains. The keychains. Oh, and we will be posting pictures of Sasquatch keychains. Not that it, not, not that I'm a Sasquatch. But yeah, you are. I've seen the pictures. Yes, you have. And... and Everybody, check out um, Lauren and I as special guests on the Talk to Q podcast, which is up and available now through the Talk to Q website or podcast service. Uh, it's a nice little interview we did about, uh, you know, being friends across the water hosting a show. Life in the time of COVID as well. <laughs> yes, life in the time of COVID as well. It is... um. <laughs> It's an excellent show. Quincy's a dear friend, and uh, we'd really like you all to give it a listen. But I am going to call this a show because there is quite a bit of work to do because we have three episodes to edit. So, um, And a very hungry cat that's probably giving you oh, very murderous the, glances. Yeah, I'm getting the stink eye from the cat. So, What about Sarah? Oh, shh. Sarah's not giving me the stink guy yet, but she's standing in the doorway. <gasps> On that note, we hope you all enjoy, and we will be back soon with a couple new special guests. So, from Brian in New York. And Lauren in Swansea. Good night. Good night. No, we're not going to do that, Brian.